During the 1980s, a television channel uh, debuted initially locally and then made its way uh, across the U.S., uh, particularly on Warner Cable. <laughs> Uh, and eventually, it reached the majority of households where kids were growing up in the 80s. <clears throat> it was called Nickelodeon. Anybody? All right. So if you're a child of the 80s, Nickelodeon was the thing to watch. Uh, before there was like Disney Channel, that stuff, Nickelodeon. Uh, and of course, everyone's favorite thing was when there would be slime, the green slime that would fall. You remember that? Oh, y'all remember that? <laughs> That's right, slime. The kids are like, slime is ours. No, no, no. It was ours first. Um, so uh, during the 80s and early 90s was like the, uh, the height of Nickelodeon, uh, the channel's success. And it was basically playing across every TV screen where there were teenagers. The thing is, these teenagers grew up, and uh, they didn't want to watch kids' uh, TV anymore. So in the late 90s, Nickelodeon, to sort of capture uh, this, this audience they were losing, decided to come up with something a little different. It was called... Nick at Night. Anybody seen that? <laughs> Where they would feature uh, some of their more, um, I don't know, uh, more edgier uh, television. <laughs> more edgier television. And eventually they started playing, replaying old favorites, uh, playing on the nostalgia of kids from the 80s. Nick at Night. The reason I'm telling you that is because I've heard people refer to this particular story. Uh, and maybe I've seen a pastor or two name this sermon Nick at night. You know where I'm going. I'm in John chapter 3. Nicodemus comes to visit Jesus at night. But there's no slime in this one. So you're safe. Open up your Bibles, please, if you, get, if you, if you brought one. If not, there's one in pew in front of you. We're in John chapter 3. And I want you to follow along with me. A very familiar story, but one that I want us to look at with new eyes today. We have begun a conversation I'm super excited about. We got our banners up called This is the Way, which is our theme for February. This is the way. And we started our conversation initially a couple of weeks ago uh, by describing how John takes a very different look at the story of Jesus. This is a very different gospel from the other three. And what he's trying to do right at the very beginning, John 1, verse 1, John, the, the author here, is trying to elevate or help us to recapture the elevated position of Jesus. So he says, in the beginning was the that's right, the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and everything that has been made through the Word, and eventually the Word became flesh and pitched His tent among us. By the time John writes this, he has given us a different expression of who Jesus is, because the first three Gospels, as I mentioned to you last week, humanized Jesus to give us the details of, of the things that He does as a human. But in John, he's trying to recapture His deity, the importance and the authority that Jesus has. And so we're going to encounter this little moment here, uh, and I'm going to read it. It's going to sound familiar, but we're going to break it down, all right? Are you there, John chapter 3? Everybody? Come on, church family. You're in church. You came to read the Word of God, I hope. All right, let's go. John 3, verse 1. And now there was a Pharisee, a man by the name of Nicodemus. Say Nicodemus. Nicodemus, that's right. That's a cool name to say. Nicodemus, it means victor or, or like the, the victor of the people or over the people, the one who, who's he's a winner. And he, and he was. He was a member of the Jewish ruling council, or in yours, it might say he was a Pharisee uh, who, was, who, was, who was a ruler, okay? Member of the Jewish ruling council, and he came to Jesus at night. So we're going to break it down right there. This person is important, but I'm not sure that we always know how important he was. See, the Jewish ruling council, the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council, was made up of at most 71 people. 
And these men essentially ran the affairs of the entire country. They had judicial power. They could make laws. They had executive power. They could carry out punishments. Um, they had le legislative power. They could make decisions. So this group of men were very powerful. We're talking the 1% here. They could determine people's lives and outcomes. They could cast down decisions and dole out punishments and settle scores and lawsuits. 71 for the entire, the entire population there of the Jews. So if you were one of the 71, it means you carried significant power, significant authority. So oftentimes when we read this, we just think he was one of many, but 71 is not that many when we're talking about a whole nation here. And he comes to Jesus at night, verse 2, hence the make it night reference here. He comes to Jesus at night and says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God because no one could perform the signs that you are doing if God was not with him. But it's obviously interesting that he comes to him at night. What you may not recognize right here in John chapter 3 is that from the beginning there, we had last week when Jesus was essentially uh, called out by John the Baptist, said, look, there's, there's the Lamb of God, and he began, people began to follow him. Much time has passed. In fact, if you read chapter 2, John highlights how he um, calls a few of his disciples, a few of the others that would kind of pattern their life after him. But much time has passed by the time we reach John chapter 3. So much time has passed that Jesus has had a chance to travel and make trouble. He's had a chance to travel and make trouble. I don't know if you make trouble when you travel, but Jesus always made trouble when he traveled. You say that three times fast, all right? <laughs> he always made trouble because wherever he went, he just couldn't help being himself. He couldn't help calling things as they were and treating people uh, the way that God had taught him to treat people. And wherever he did that, it ran aground this Jewish ruling council. Because the way they ran their affairs was very different from what Jesus was doing. For example, in chapter 2, we find that Jesus, as you'll recognize this in the video, he's at this wedding feast, you'll remember. Uh, he has a few followers, but he hasn't really publicly declared himself anyone. And, and he's at this wedding feast, and they run out of, of wine, and then the mom says, do something. You know, moms are like, do something. <laughs> and Jesus says, my time it's not yet. It's like, why are you, I'm not, it's not time yet. He's waiting. Nevertheless, you know the story. They fill the water. It becomes wine. And, the, and the, the master ceremony says, wow, you've saved the best for last. Jesus is doing things upside down. But in that moment, he reveals he has power. He doesn't want to, but he has power. But the very next story that John tells us is that Jesus arrives after traveling and making trouble in Judea. He arrives at Jerusalem. He goes to church. And in the outer courts, you know this chapter too, if not, read it for yourself. In the outer courts, there's all kinds of commerce taking place. And Jesus makes a whip. John says, makes a whip. And starts whipping through the air and chases people out. And he says, you cannot, you cannot do this in my father's house. For my father's house shall be a house of prayer. So he asserts his authority. He reveals his power earlier at that wedding, the first one we call the first miracle, but then he asserts, he actually takes it and he says, and if you read chapter 2, he's like, he's cleaning out the temple and they ask him, who gave you authority to do this? And Jesus essentially says, I'm the son of God. I, this is my father's house. I know what my father wants because I came from the father. 
So by the time we read John chapter 3, a lot has happened. He has begun to challenge the status quo and especially the establishment. The establishment. But Nicodemus represents the establishment. He's one of the 71 whose responsibility is to set the course of life. So people are living according to the way that Nicodemus is ruling. Following me? That Jesus comes and he's upsetting everything. That's why Nicodemus comes to him at night. The Theologians believe, probably because he didn't want to be seen or associated with Jesus. His other 70 friends might say, hey, what are you doing with that guy who's trying to undermine who we are, who stands against us? It's quite possible that uh, Nicodemus had been around, had watched him, had seen him, might have heard of John the Baptist, but he was curious, curious enough to seek an audience, but not in public. So he comes to Jesus at night, and he says, Rabbi or teacher, we know that you have come from, from God. Uh, no one could perform the signs that you're doing. He's about to say, you know, he's trying to like get into it. But Jesus responds, verse 3, he says, Very truly, verily, verily, I say unto you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are Come on, family. Unless they are born again. And if you, if, if you read uh, John, the, the chapter marks are were added later. But if you read the verses just before this, Jesus says, I don't need you to tell me. I don't need any men to tell me what they're thinking because I already know. I already know what you're thinking. I know what's in your heart. Why? Because in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God, and the Word made everything. He knows us. He made us. So he doesn't need it. And yet when Nicodemus comes, Jesus says, I already know what you came for. Let me just get right to it. Verily, verily, this is Jesus' way of saying, look, for real, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. He cuts right to the heart of the matter because what Nicodemus is trying to do, let me just like break it down for you. What Nicodemus is trying to do is he's trying to come to Jesus to ask for a little bit of what I call magic dust. So <clears throat> a couple of years ago, I took my kids to Disneyland. And uh, I don't know why I didn't do this earlier, but I found out that there's a special place at Disneyland where little princesses can get a makeover. Uh, I don't know if any of you uh, princesses out there have ever gone to get a makeover, but right by the castle... Pastor Kayla probably has, but you guys know where the castle is, right? We can talk about it because it's not here. Uh, right by the castle, there's a little boutique. That's right, a little boutique, a very, uh, uh, very cool boutique. And you go in there, princesses, and you can pick any princess outfit that you like. You could be Jasmine, okay, I got a Jasmine over here. You could be uh, Belle, that's right, that's right, Belle. You could be... You could be Moana. You could be any of the princesses. Yes. And you get this outfit, and they put you in a chair. No joke, because I actually watched. It was amazing. They, they, and then they pull all your hair back, like the princess. They, and they put it in a bun, and then they get you outfitted. The little girls, they get, it's not a haircut. Just, I don't know how they do it, but they all look the same when they come out. But the coolest part about it is, the coolest part about it is once they've sort of done the makeover, and I got this on, on video, they spin the chair, and then they get the fairy dust. And they do this magic fairy dust, and it's like, ah. It's magical. And the girls are like, ah. And they come out of there, you know, like, and there's music and birds. I don't know how. But it, it's, it's true. It's like this fairy dust they want, right? Just like in the, 
The fairy dust. It changes everything. Suddenly they come out of there. It's fantastic. And, and, and that fairy dust is essentially what I think Nicodemus wants from Jesus. The problem is he doesn't want anything else. See, Nicodemus is pretty happy with his life. If you were, and maybe you are, by the way, it's quite possible that some of y'all are the top 1%. Well, you're certainly the top 1% of the world, but even in the U.S., <laughs> even in the U.S. And, and if you're in the top 1%, when you have legislative authority, uh, civil authority, you know, cultural authority, if you have power, you're one of the 71 most powerful people in the nation, your life is pretty good. It's very possible that Nicodemus was uh, well-educated, probably had significant wealth, and he had influence. In fact, we know that because later he comes up with the goods. He's got cash. He's got money. He's got power. He got a position and prestige. All that is good. He's pretty happy with that. But as he's been listening to Jesus and watching, he notices that Jesus has, I don't know, a little bit of fairy dust, right? And so he comes to him at night, and I think he basically says, can I get some? Can I get some of that? So I can put it over my stuff. But Jesus sees him a mile away. And he says, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. Nicodemus' first response, you'll recognize this, is uh, okay, but that makes no sense. He says, how can someone be born when they are already old? Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Nicodemus is like, he doesn't even say, you didn't, I didn't get to my question because Jesus just cut him off at the pass. I know what you're looking for. You want the magic dust, but you can't even see it or discern it unless you are born again. Nicodemus says, born again? What are you talking about? How's an old person going to go through it again? And Jesus responds, verse 5, follow along with me. He says, truly, very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. So he uses two expressions here. First he says, born again. And then he says, born of water and the Spirit. And he also uses two different expressions of the result. He says, you cannot see the kingdom versus you cannot enter the kingdom. Now we're going to hang out here for just a second, all right? Because at first glance, you've read this before, and you're thinking, okay, uh, Nicodemus, he comes, he doesn't quite understand, he's not getting this. But I don't think... We've always understood why he doesn't get it or what it is really that's bothering him. Because the Bible will tell us here that Jesus continues, verse 6, he says, First gives birth to flesh, gives birth to flesh, spirit to the spirit. You shouldn't be surprised that I'm saying you must be born again. Nicodemus still says, but I don't get it. Verse 9, how can this be? How can this be? See, here's the thing. When Jesus addresses his heart's concern, he essentially lays out an invitation for everyone else who would forever read this, like you and me. So he says, what are you after? Here's how to get it. You recall we, we read this last week when Jesus was first uh, pointed out by John, John the Baptist. Those two guys began to follow him. Remember, they stalked him. To which Jesus turns around and says, what do you want? What do you want from me? And they said, we want to know where you live. Where are you staying? And then his answer is, come Come and see. So we discovered that Jesus invites us, invites us to see how he lives. That's his invitation. Come and see. 
See, what Jesus is inviting us is into an experience, an experience, not theory. It's not just thoughts and ideas, but an experience, something that's tangible, real, physical, mental, spiritual, relational, something that can happen IRL, right, in real life. It's not in theory. It's not a thought construct. It's in real life. He says, come and see. And, and we discover that they spent the day with him. They, it's, it's an experience measured in time. If you read the rest of chapter 1, Jesus then encounters a few others, and he makes the invitation more direct. In fact, he says to Philip and Nathaniel, follow, follow me. He doesn't say, go there, do this. He says, I'm going Follow after me. Follow me. But where are you going, Jesus? And what are you doing? Come and see. He's inviting us into an experience of time and an expression of relationship and to watch what he does and to pattern ourselves after that. So when Nicodemus comes and he wants the fairy dust, Jesus recognizes that Nicodemus doesn't want to follow Jesus. You get it? He wants to keep his life, his wealth, his riches, power, and prestige. He just wants some of the magic dust. Now, before we mock him too much, isn't he a lot like us? And how we're living our life, doing our things, being the top 1% that we are, conducting our affairs, handling our business, doing what we want. But once in a while, oh, dear Jesus, please give me some of your magic dust. Get me out of this scenario. Fix this situation so I can go on about my business. And Jesus says, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Hmm. Okay, let's break that down for a second. So <clears throat> I promised you I would, so I'm going to. So here's the thing, because you know I am a, I'm a scholar. Uh, just, just kidding. I, I am not a scholar. Uh, but here's the thing. <clears throat> that... that uh, that phrase there that's included in, in, um, in that verse, in, in verse 3, he says, uh, unless, we say born again, right? You, you've heard that phrase, born again. But the word itself, the word itself is anothen in, in the Greek. And that word can sometimes be translated again, but it can also be translated from above or from the top. It's used a few times in John and other places in the Bible. And, and I believe that what Jesus is actually saying is from above. When we say again, and clearly Nicodemus is like, we can't go through the birthing canal again, like do it again. We can't do that. And Jesus says, unless you are actually born from above. And the reason I believe this is true is because Jesus is actually challenging us to have a rebirth, but of a different kind. Jesus is actually challenging you to get a new life from a different place. He's not actually saying you should just go and do it over again, whatever you did before. That being born again. Now, I don't remember being born, do you? I don't remember. My first earliest memories are like I'm four years old probably, and I'm crying. I'm sure I'm crying. That's <laughs> something traumatic has happened. I'm like, ah, my bottle. I don't know what I'm crying for. But that's my earliest memories. And although I might have enjoyed my childhood, no one really wants to go back to that state of helplessness and dependency, and, and do it again. No, Jesus is not actually saying, just do it again. He's saying, you must be born from above. That's what I believe. From above. Above. And he says, if you're born anything from above, then your life then is different. Nicodemus wants fairy dust, but Jesus wants a different life. Totally different. 
from above. Nicodemus is asking for just a little bit of magic, and Jesus is offering transformation, a new life. And Jesus says to him, unless you are born from above, you cannot see. That's in your, in your versions there. But the real word is IDN, which means to behold or to discern. He says, unless you are being born from above, you cannot distinguish the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is not a literal physical place, but it is a literal physical reality. It exists in time, in psychological expression, in, in physical expression, in relational expression. Just like I told you, because Jesus is saying, come and see. He wants to give you an experience in real life. So he says, unless you are born from above, you cannot see it. You cannot distinguish it. You cannot discern it. That's his first input. And then Nicodemus says, well, I don't get it. How do we go back in? And then Jesus responds, and he says, unless you are born of water and the Spirit... This time, he says, you cannot enter into the kingdom of God. And the word there, the Greek word is, by the way, that's not Greek, but if I wrote the Greek, you'd be like, mm, what is that? So um, I'm using the phonetic uh, Greek writing, <laughs> asal thing. And, and what that word means is to enter into, to become a part of, to participate. So he says, unless you are born from above or born of water and the spirit, three separate things. He says, you cannot discern it and you cannot become a part of it. What do you think about that? You cannot discern it, and you cannot become a part of it. Now, Nicodemus is concerned, and he's upset. But you might not know why exactly he is upset. See, some people think it's because this born again is new to him, or even the idea of baptism is new to him, but it actually isn't. By this time, Nicodemus says, watch John the Baptist baptize a lot of people. I mean, it's, it's actually the end thing. People are getting baptized. Like, hey, you doing it? I'll do it. So it's very popular. But did you know that the Jews were actually baptizing people before John the Baptist came around? In fact, they offered baptism as a symbol of expression of adoption. See, the Jews believed way back from Abraham's days that if they were descendants of the right race, if they were the right ethnicity, they were guaranteed passage into the kingdom of God. It was theirs. It, was, it belonged to them. So all you had to do in their eyes was basically be born Jewish. And you were in. Now where in the line, depending on how good you were, how much authority you had, but you were basically in. But if you were not born a Jew, you were out. That's not unlike today's philosophies about race, culture, and ethnicity, right? And so... Once in a while, because now they lived under Roman, Roman occupation, once in a while you found somebody from a different ethnic group who would say, hey, I want to join in. And they would say, no, you weren't born one of us. You cannot be one of us unless you become adopted by us. And the only way to get adopted, by the way, is to get a new birth certificate. I know this because I'm adopted. The only way you become adopted is you get issued a new birth certificate. And for them, that birth certificate was issued through baptism. You would get baptized, come up out of the water, it would be a symbol of being born, and then they say, okay, now you've been adopted as a Jew, even though you were not born a Jew. The problem is, not that Jesus is saying baptism is necessary, the problem is that Nicodemus was already a Jew. So he was like, why would I need it? I'm already a Jew. 
I'm already entitled. See, John had said the baptism is necessary for the forgiveness of sins. So what John is doing and what Jesus is claiming here, it is not your birth. Huh? It is not your ethnicity. It is not your power. Or isn't anything that you do that actually gives you a place in the kingdom. It is your recognition of who you are that helps you see that you don't have a place in the kingdom. And only through being born again from above can you gain access to it, enter into it. So Nicodemus is, is upset, not because baptism is new to him, but because he doesn't think he needs it. And before we mock him too much, isn't he a lot like us? A lot of us are pretty smug about our Christianity. We come to church, we dress the part, we look around, and we thumb our noses at other people, especially younger people. And we say, oh, kids these days. Or, oh, my family. Oh, my friends. Oh. And we thumb our noses because we think somehow we're already in. But Jesus says, no, unless you are born from above. What does that mean, Anathan, from above? He continues, very truly, I say unto you, unless you are born of water and the spirit. Uh, Nicodemus says, I don't understand. He says, flesh is flesh, but spirit is spirit. And he tells them, why don't you understand these things? You're supposed to be the teacher, and you don't understand? And then he says, verse 13, no one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven. He says, I'm the only one who can reveal these things to you because I told you in John chapter 1, Jesus came to show us the heart of the Father. So here what John, the author, is actually doing is he's helping us reclaim Jesus' authority to tell us the truth. Amen? He's reasserting Jesus. Let me say it again because I don't, I don't think you caught that. He's reasserting Jesus' authority to tell us what truth is. No one can describe heaven except the one who came from heaven, he says. You cannot know the will of God unless you hear it from the one who was there with him. Because I was the word in the beginning. You see? And so he says, so listen, verse 14, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. But lifted up isn't actually like, ah, oh, let's praise Jesus. Lifted up here actually is an expression for being crucified. Jesus says the Son of Man must be crucified. He must be killed, which is direct opposition because Jesus did not come to elevate himself. He came to put himself down. Down, down, down. To what? To trade places with you and me. To take your punishment so that you get his righteousness. To swap places. Our sin for his righteousness. Our guilt for his innocence. Our enslavement for his freedom. So he says the Son of Man must trade places so that everyone who believes in him may have a eternal life. And that's why John captures this so, so beautifully in John 3.16, right? Come on, let's do it together. For God so loved the world... That he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life or everlasting life. John hears here, he's telling us the words of Jesus, and he says, you guys got to get this. Jesus came so that you might believe and have eternal life. Verse 17, for God did not send his son to the world to condemn the world, but to save the world 
through him, and whoever believes in him is not condemned. But if you don't believe him, you stand condemned already. See, he's making this, this, this con- contradiction between being condemned and, and, and being saved, being condemned and being saved. But what is the difference? You and I need to understand that. Because Jesus didn't come to condemn. He came to save. He came to rescue, he says. Why? Because he loved us. Everything that Jesus does, everything that God does is motivated by his love. But there's that word, believe. What does that word mean? Believe. Oftentimes we think it means like, okay, I agree with that. I believe. I think. I mean, I could conceptualize that thought. But in the original language here, the word believe actually is, is different. It, it has to do with what you do as a result. See, for you and I, belief can be simply a mental exercise. But for them, belief is only expressed in the resulting actions. Let me give you an example. Uh, how many of you guys believe in your doctors? You think they, uh, you go to the doctor, the doctor says, you're sick. You're like, okay. Now, y'all don't, right? You're like, nah, I'm on a second opinion. <laughs> You guys don't believe in your doctors. But even if you did believe in your doctors, okay, doctor says here, take this medicine, you'll get well. I have found, I have discovered that, because I'm a bad patient too, that even though we believe them, we may not necessarily do anything about what they said. True? Am I right? Am I right? Am I right? Yes. We believe, but it doesn't actually create any responding action. But what is being described here is different. This belief means that there is a resulting action that corresponds to your change in thought. So, whoever believes is actually a reflection of what is changed in your actions based on the change of your thought. So, belief is not a mental construct. It is an experience expressed in time that is relational, spiritual, physical, in real life. You following me? And so uh, uh, the author here says, so if you believe, you will have eternal life. But if you don't believe, but if you don't believe, you, you, you stand condemned already. Look at what the word continues to say right there. This is really interesting. We are in verse uh, 19. And he says this, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love the darkness instead of the light. Because their deeds were evil. Light has come into the world, but people love the darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. According to the, um, the Bible dictionary, the word darkness there uh, represents not just what you and I would call like, you know, nighttime. But the word darkness there uh, represents the ignorance of the divine. Ignorance of the divine or, or, or dismissal of the divine. The darkness word is, is, is a, um, an intention to avoid the divine. And, and of course, uh, the word for light is false. But what is light? You know, there is a Wikipedia uh, definition of it. It has to do with rays and photons and whatnot. But essentially, they say life, light is essentially the source of life. The sun gives light to the earth that allows the plants to use Photosynthesis, yeah, false. Photosynthesis to create starches that give fuel to every organism on the planet. Without the sunlight, we would die pretty quick. Hmm? And, and Jesus says essentially that he is the source of that light. He is the one that gives us the light. So, so these are two things. Condemnation is the ignorance of the divine, but light is the source of life. 
Ignorance of the divine, the acceptance of the divine. Ignorance of the divine, acceptance of the divine. So the, this is the verdict, verse 19 says. Darkness has come in, I mean, light has come into the darkness, but people prefer the dark. People prefer the dark. You know who else prefers the dark? Roaches. Roaches. Rats. Rats prefer the dark. Raccoons. Pretty much anything with an R. Anything with an R prefers the dark. Why? Why do they prefer the dark? Why do roaches like the dark or rats like the dark or raccoons like the dark? Because they're doing dirty business, family. <laughs> dirty business. They avoid the light because the Bible says the light exposes their deeds. But those that prefer the darkness, they are trying to be ignorant of the divine because they don't want their deeds to be exposed. So there lies the question for you and for me as we are evaluating whether we understand or have received this invitation to be born again. Are you ready to come into the light? Or do you prefer hanging around in the darkness? Here's the fascinating thing about today's culture. Even though <clears throat> we live in the most public time in our culture, there are pictures of you all over the internet. <laughs> you posted them. Instagram, Facebook, and all this stuff. The truth is we only post what we want people to, to see. But what remains in the darkness is more like the true version of us. And Jesus' invitation here, the verdict, is to come into the light. Light has come, but people prefer the darkness. Jesus says, no, come into the light. And he'll say one more thing that we're going to end with. I'm going to read it then in verse 21. Verse 20 and 21. Everyone who does evil hates the light, will not come to the light for fear that their deeds be exposed. Verse 21. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light. Whoever lives by the truth comes into the light. Here's why I think this is so important for us. Because Jesus is inviting us. This is the way. Not just to believe in him, but to live in him. See, false is light. Jesus says, I am the truth, the way, and the life. But that word, the light, is, is the same all over John. Light and life are become the same thing in Jesus Christ. And there in this verse, he invites us to, to do, to do, come into light by what? Doing the truth. This is the word for doing, and this is the word for truth. I don't know if you recognize this word, alethin, but it's in that verse right there. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus says, this is how you come into the light, by doing the truth. What does that mean? It means you do the Jesus. You do the Jesus. I am the way, the truth, and the life. See, this is what I believe, what I've come to believe. Jesus' invitation to be born from above, this rebirth, we call it born again, but I think that cheapens it, to be born from above. This is the same word. This comes from James, from above. I've highlighted this word, the same word. Wisdom from above is pure, peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy, good fruits, unwavering, and without hypocrisy. To be born from above means that your life would be described this way, that your life would be in pursuit of these things, peace, gentleness, reasonableness, mercy, good fruits, unwavering. To be born from above means that this is what your heart pursues. And if this is what your heart pursues, Jesus says, then you will enter that you will enter into the kingdom. What does that word mean? That same word that we use for enter is the same word that Jesus uses here. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. 
And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him. Jesus wants to be a part of it. You see that? There's this, this, this joining. There's a becoming. Then the false that we use is the same here in Ephesians. The fruit of the light consists of goodness, righteousness, and truth. And the word for doing, point, is the same here. Therefore, the one who knows the right things to do but does not do them to him, it is a sin. It is a sin. So what am I getting at? Listen, Jesus' invitation is not theoretical. His invitation to come and see means that it's something that we express in time. Jesus invites us to follow him into the light, away from the darkness, to practice Jesus. To do truth, poion aletheon, means to practice Jesus, to do Jesus. What does that mean? It means we pattern our life's responses according to what he does. Gentleness, kindness, forgiveness, generosity. That's the pattern he left. That's the invitation. So my invitation to you, as the worship team joins me on the stage, are you ready? Are you ready to become born from above? Being born from above means we have a new birth certificate. You know, I have two birth certificates. One is handwritten, because that's how Bolivians do it. <laughs> it's handwritten. It's a paper copy. And then in my teens, I was adopted. And when I was adopted here in the San Diego Superior Court, uh, my mom will tell you, I have a new certificate. This one is typewritten. Americans do it in type. And on this new certificate, even though I was 13 or so, I got a new name. It lists what I was known as before and what I'm known now. And although the paper renames me and gives me officially or formally a new set of parents, that paper is only a symbol of the change that happened in my life. I got a new birth certificate because I left my old life behind. I recognize some of it wasn't of my choosing, of my doing, but I can tell you the difference. I lived in a whole different country, spoke a different language, dressed differently, believed differently. When I became adopted, I embraced this country. I learned to speak this tongue, see? I learned to follow the, cost, the customs and the rules and the ways of this life. It's so different. Do you follow me? To get a new birth certificate, to become born from above, means to leave the old behind. Let it go. Drop it. And embrace a new identity. It's not just sprinkling a little bit of fairy dust on my past. It's not just asking for a little bit of blessing on what I just do in the normal course of my life. It's to trade all that in for something totally different. Something that's not driven by me, but by Him. For He is the only way, the only truth, the only life. And His invitation is to become new in Him. Now, you're not doing this on your own, and you can't. But because of His grace and of His power, we can practice Jesus. One day, one decision, one word, one choice at a time. And I believe that's what he's offering us. And I believe that's what he wants us, for us. And I'm convinced it's the only way we're going to survive this turbulent time. Not be defined by what culture says. Not get sucked into their ideas or beliefs. But to stay steady on Jesus.
and follow him. This is the way.